and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 31st episode. And today, as always, you are joined by your hosts, Master Tierra and Master Jack. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because last week we officially graduated with our Masters of Dietetics degrees. So we will only respond to now <laughs> as Masters. <laughs> But yeah, pretty exciting. We are officially dietitians. We are officially bodybuilding dietitians. And yeah, so today we have a pretty great episode lined up for you. We've got a lot of great listener questions. So we're going to do a question answer episode. So I guess we'll just kick straight into it. Awesome. So we thought we'd start off with a question about deload because we I deloaded last uh, two weeks ago and Tiara is deloading this week. And we got asked two questions about deloads, one from Dylan and one from Lorday. Sorry if I mispronounced that. But the first question is how to schedule a deload? What exactly are they? And the second one, when should we know to deload? All right. So I think the first one is that we should probably touch on is what is a deload, Jack? So a deload is a period of time which usually lasts for about a week, which occurs after a period of overreaching at the end of your training block, which usually runs for between anywhere between four and 10 weeks, I would say. And essentially in the deep period of deloading, you reduce volume and some people reduce training intensity as well. So personally, I like to reduce training volume and intensity. So Tiara, I'll let you go on. Yeah, so... I I guess what Jack and I really want to make clear is that there is no perfect way to deload. Everyone takes a different approach, but I guess the overarching goal is you're just trying to reduce total systemic fatigue. So really, you're just trying to let your body recover, give it a week to relax. You don't want to be training to failure at all. And you really just want to be getting rid of any niggles so that you can enter your next next training block feeling energized, refreshed, and just in a good mindset and motivated to really, you know, smash through that next training block as well. So there's a lot of different approaches that you can take. So personally, what I like to do is I like to take a slight decrease in training intensity. So I usually reduce the loads anywhere between 2.5 to 5 kilograms. And then I take a pretty significant decrease in total training volume. So I usually do around four sets per exercise just because I find that I have a very good recovery capacity. But during my deload weeks, I reduce those four sets down to two sets per exercise. So the training sessions just absolutely fly by. And my rationale behind that is that because I'm a bodybuilder, you know, and as bodybuilders, for most of our working sets, we're only working around eh, like around 70, 75% of our one rep max. So, you know, we're not loading our bodies with like crazy amounts of weights as if as what a power lifter might be like, you know, closer upwards of 90 to 100% of their one rep max. So you don't necessarily need to take that much of a decrease in total training load. But the reason why we accumulate a lot of fatigue is more attributed to the total amount of volume that we're doing. And throughout the course of a mesocycle, your training volume is going to be progressively increasing as you're overreaching. So 
I really like to reduce total systemic fatigue by significantly reducing total training volume. So yeah, I basically, I stick to my normal training routine, but I just do half the amount of volume. But I know that Jack takes a different approach as well. Yeah, so I usually work based off percentages because say if you take five kilos off a back squat, you could still be working with 95% of what you usually lift. So I usually take, uh, take away, sorry, I usually work with around 70 to 80% of what I usually do for my main lifts. And then I bring my weekly sets down for each body part to around 10 or even slightly less than 10 sets per week. And usually they would be up between anywhere between 14 and 18 or even slightly higher for back. So, and yeah, I usually go in only about three days during a deload because let's face it, I don't really like being in there just for like 45 minutes at a time. I'd rather be in there for slightly longer and just do what it needs to be done and then leave because uh, we can, neither of us particularly enjoy deloading, and but we know it's just something that needs to be done. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary. And I think that ties really nicely into the next question is, when do you know that you actually need a deload? Like what sort of signs would your body be telling you? So I think until you actually take your first deload, you don't actually realize that your body does definitely need one. And there is also the reverse side as well, where some people may not be training with adequate intensity or volume or even consistency. Because say if you only go to the gym three days a week, then obviously you're having a four days recovery time per week. So you may not even need a deload. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make is that Deloads are usually only required if you are following a very specific program, you know, where you are overreaching and you're trying to beat numbers week after week. And usually if you're training probably between four to six times every single week with intensity during those sessions. But like Jack just said, if you're just recreationally going to the gym and, you know, you go three times a week for 45 minutes and you do a few, you know, just basic exercises, then a deload might not be very applicable in your circumstance. Mm. But a few things that crop up for me when I know I'm needing a deload is so I guess in sort of an order of importance is I am struggling to attain numbers during my week of lifting that would were that was slightly easier the week before. So say on a barbell overhead press, I've been making steady progress and the week that I know I'll need to deload, I either regress in weight or it's it's very, very difficult. And some other things as well will be sleep. Your sleep might be disturbed. Uh, your appetite might either increase or decrease quite dramatically. And just general feelings of fatigue. And yeah. Yeah, another huge one for me is heart rate variability. So I track my heart rate on a daily basis. I My Fitbit does it for me. And I like to look at that data and collect it. And usually when my resting heart rate spikes, uh, that's usually a sign that I've generally overreached and I'm in a more sympathetic nervous state just at rest, which can be very unpleasant. So for example, these last few weeks, my resting heart rate has been around 53 during the day. And then at night, you know, when I'm deep in sleep, it drops down to around 42. But this last week, you know, I, I really overreached with my training, which was awesome. I beat a lot of numbers, but my resting heart rate has now gone up to like 63, 64 during the day. And then 
during my sleep, it's usually around 53, 54. So it's a 10 beat increase per minute. And I really feel that like you can really feel when your heart rate is higher. And I kind of just I, this these past few days, I've kind of just felt a little bit on edge and a little bit stressed and it has been very unpleasant. So looking at heart rate variability is huge. And I think another big one is just your motivation to train because, you know, Jack and I freaking love this. We love going to the gym. It's like the best part of our day. You know, it's the best hobby in the world. And I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this podcast can relate to that. We freaking love training, but you know, sometimes you know that you need a deload when training does doesn't seem all that attractive anymore. And you know, you're not, you don't get as hyped up to go to your sessions and you're almost like you look at your training program, you're like, oh God, I have to train today or oh, I have to train legs today, which it's such an absurd feeling. Like I never feel like this, but these past few days, I've just been quite low energy and I'm just like, I don't look as forward to training anymore, which is so weird for me because I love going to the gym. So that can be another huge indicator that maybe you just need to take a little bit of a break for a few days. <laughs> But yeah, I think that answers that question pretty well. Mm. The last thing I'll say is don't confuse needing a deload with just a difficult week of training as well, because whenever, if ever training gets tough and you feel like you need a deload, then you may not end up training with enough intensity. So yeah, exactly. Don't be scared to take it there, but that's at the same time, what comes in really valuable, actually strategically programming so that you actually have that week of overreaching where, you know, you're taking things to one rep in reserve. Maybe, you know, your last set, you are going to failure. You're really, really pushing it in preparation for, you know, that following week, you're going to have a deload and you're going to be able to adequately recover. Cool. So then we actually have quite a few questions on fiber and resistant starch this week. So we thought we'd pack them all together into a few, into one big answer. So the first question is by Archie. In a prep, do you track fiber slash consider it as part of total calories? Would it make sense to keep it in a tightly controlled range given that it has calories? If so, what kind of ranges would you recommend? Does this amount increase throughout prep to allow for lower calories, resulting in more voluminous, fiber-rich food sources, or just focus on protein, carbs, and fat? All right, so I guess to first start off this question is that Jack and I definitely do track fiber, and we do give all of our clients you know, a fiber target. It's obviously going to be different for every single client because some clients prefer to have a higher fiber intake and some clients prefer to have a slightly lower fiber intake as long as it's adequate. The general recommendations are that you're consuming at least 25 to 30 grams of fiber per day. And uh, so fiber does contain, when it's fermented in the small intestine, it can create short chain fatty acids, which can contribute to total energy intake. And each gram of fiber can equate to two to three calories per gram. But at the same time, it's still kind of a mystery because we don't really know, you know, which fibers are going to be fermented, which aren't because they're all fermented in a different way by bacteria in our large colon. So, you know, if, whether you're consuming more soluble, more insoluble fibers, more resistant starch, we don't really know. We can't really put a number on it. So I would actually recommend, it probably would be smart, you know, just for consistency to try to keep your fiber within 
you know, a range. So if you're consuming between, let's say, 30 to 40 grams per day, try to keep that consistent on a daily basis just to account for any possible energy intake that uh, is being consumed through that fiber, but also just for regular bowel movements as well. Mm, And the other thing I'll add as well is that in Australia, the fiber intake is, sorry, the fiber in a particular food is, is added within the carbohydrate content. So say if you're eating a oats and it's 30 grams per serving and the amount of fiber in that is five grams. So the five grams will be a part of the 30 grams of carbs. Yeah, exactly. And then over in the US, they don't actually add the total fiber amount to the carbohydrate amount. So what you'll see on packages in the US is what it says is net carbs. So net carbs is basically the amount of digestible carbohydrates that you'd have in there. So on an oat packet in the US, it might say net carbs, 25 grams, and then it will say fiber, five grams. In the end, they both equate to 30 grams. Mm. So just giving everyone a heads up there because there is a bit of a difference in packaging between Australia and the US. But I kind of like our system. I like Mm. knowing that the fiber is added to the carbohydrates, especially if you know, if you were eating vegetables and let's say per serving it had 10 grams of carbs, but nine of those were fiber, you only have one gram of actual digestible carbohydrates. Yeah, and personally, I wouldn't worry about it too much because you can add in so many other extra variables. For example, like say if you have 15 grams of fiber in a meal and 60 grams of carbohydrates, like how much does that additional fiber disrupt the absorption of those carbohydrates, fats, and protein in that meal? So you could go into more depth about that. And I just don't think it's worth it, especially in a prep. Like if you're if you want to have more fiber to keep you more full, then just do it and just do it. Yeah. And <laughs> like, yeah, the, the upper range of fiber is 70 grams. Obviously, don't go to that in one go, but so slowly increase your fiber. But I don't think um, this should discourage anyone from wanting to eat more fiber. Yeah, exactly. Fiber is fantastic. And usually a high fiber diet usually indicates that someone has, you know, good food diversity, especially a good diversity of plants in their diet. And they're eating lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, lots of different types of whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes. So it's usually a good indication. So Mm. fiber is a really, really good thing. But just don't, don't stress too much about it. So the next question about fiber is from Sulia, and she asks, how do you accurately track fiber? Some veg packets list more fiber than carbs, so do you have to add them back? So Sulia, based on what we just said, unfortunately, I think the packaging for your vegetables might be incorrect because I'm pretty sure that you are based here in Australia. And if it says that the total carbohydrates is less than the amount of fiber, then either that packaging's just incorrect or maybe that package is actually imported from the US where they are using just the net carbs and then they're separating the fiber from that. So that's all I can really Mm. assume. The only other thing I'll add is that there is a variation in accuracy as we touched a couple of podcast episodes ago. And if there's a 25% variation in accuracy between carbohydrates and fiber, then that's another reason why fiber could be higher mm-hmm. just because it's yeah not very accurate yeah 
Okay, so the final question on fiber is by Sean and he asks, is it problematic if most of your carbs are resistant starch cooked meals for rest of week in brackets? So let's break down this question a little bit. And I think what Sean is trying to ask is essentially when you cook a product and then refrigerate it, then the resistant starch increases specifically for products such as rice and potatoes and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so it's called like retrogradation. So when you cook a food and then you refrigerate it, what happens is that the uh, amylase there, it can form bonds known as beta bonds. And we don't actually have the digestive enzymes in order to break those beta bonds. So they'll pass through your small intestine, go into your large intestine, known as resistant starch. So starch that is resistant to absorption, but then it's fermented in the, and then it can, again, create short chain fatty acids like we talked about before, which can contribute to energy intake. Alpha beta. Alpha beta baby. Food science 101. <laughs> no, I was referring to alpha beta. Beta beta, you know. <laughs> potato, potato. <laughs> so essentially when you're cooking something and refrigerating it, the not the whole amount of carbohydrates will turn into resistant starch. So you don't really have to worry about that. And in, I would say that it's just a, it's more beneficial than anything else because you are getting an increased amount of resistant starch, which is fermentable. It increases um, the production of gut bacteria and short chain fatty acids. So I would say it's not problema problematic at all. Yeah, exactly. Because not of it, all of it is resistant starch. The reason why it's not problematic is because you're still going to be able to absorb a lot of that glucose from those carbohydrates in that food. So you're still going to get good energy from that, which is good. We want to be getting energy mm. from our food. <laughs> Yes, and if we have misinterpreted the question and you really are getting most of your carbs are resistant starch, then that's probably not the best thing. Because like Tierra said, you want to be getting energy from your food. Yeah, but I think that would be pretty hard to get all your carbs from resistant starch. Oh yeah, it'd be crazy. And you'd probably notice that you're running into a lot of digestive issues. Just man, you're, you just might feel very, very bloated and uncomfortable in your belly. All right, so we've got one last question on fiber to finish this off. So it says, things to do when calories are lower, fiber and water is still up, but your bowels aren't moving as much. Now, I think that this is very applicable and very relatable to anyone who has been deep into a contest prep or just deep into a diet in general. You know, when you are on pretty low calories and you are still consuming sufficient fiber, you're staying hydrated, but like, man, you're just not going to the bathroom regularly and it can be really uncomfortable. So don't worry, this is something that we've probably all experienced before. And Jack and I can definitely say that when we signed up as dietitians, we were warned that we're gonna be talking a hell of a lot more about poop than we would have expected. So <laughs> we're used to this. Yeah, and I guess the first thing that we'll say is um, more of something doesn't always mean better. So just because let's give constipation for an example, which unfortunately we've dealt with a lot at the hospital, but just because you add more fiber into the equation doesn't mean that they'll then pass, their, their bowels will open more. So, and it goes the same way when, uh, like when you're decreasing food bulk, but you're increasing fiber, then that doesn't always increase the stool output as well. 
Mm -hmm. And you'll, you'd also want to look at the types of fiber that you're consuming. So usually if you're trying to combat constipation, you might want to go for more sources that have more soluble fiber in them. So soluble fiber means that it's soluble in water, so it absorbs more water. So that's going to add a lot more moisture to your stool, and that's more likely to help things pass through compared to insoluble fiber, which doesn't absorb water, and it kind of just adds bulk to the stool, but it can just get... That's the one that's quite painful yeah, to... real dry, <laughs> real dry. <laughs> Especially when you have low fat as well. Yeah, geez, I, yeah, I'm sure people have probably experienced that for sure in prep where they've got huge high vegetable intakes, but very low fat intakes too. Yeah, so uh, what would be some examples of soluble fiber, Jack? So just think about uh, things that absorb water, um, types of food. So things like rice, oats, pasta, mm -hmm. anything that increases in volume when you when you cook it. Yeah, and then an insoluble fiber would be something like broccoli or broccoli or baked kale leaves, cauliflower, um, things like that. Corn, carrots, yeah. Yeah. The things you can see in your... In your <laughs> <laughs> the things you see on the other side. <laughs> insoluble. <laughs> whoa where's this combo going <laughs> but i will say that yeah it's something that we all deal with but really you just got to combat it and try your absolute best to not stress over it because sometimes being highly stressed can really influence our digestive patterns and our bowel movements so try to take a deep breath try to relax and what's everyone else who has ever experienced like a refeed day has probably experienced is that they have an increase in bowel movements and things just start going. And the reason for that is just more food bulk. And you know, there's more food in your intestines and there's just increased motility because the body's just trying to move all of that through. So mm. people have probably experienced that. And it like just, you know, that feel good feeling on a refeed day. It's like, oh man, finally. <laughs> the endorphin spike. Oh yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that was a nice way to wrap up our um, little discussion on fiber. Maybe we'll move on to a new topic now. Yeah, we'll answer one from Lawrence about training. And he asks, how do you generally apply progressive overload for your clients? And what would you say are pros and cons of different overloading strategies? Congrats on graduating, guys. Thank you, Lawrence. All right, so there's a lot of different ways to progressively overload, but I guess what Jack and I'll just first point out is that the majority of, well, all of our clients right now, you know, we train for hypertrophy and they're predominantly people who are looking to compete and they are bodybuilders. So we aren't actually dealing with any power lifters or strength athletes per se. So the recommendations for athletes like that would probably be a little bit different. But Jack, what are some ways that you like to progressively overload with your clients? So the reality of most beginner and intermediate lifters is that they can rely on linear progression. And this is basically adding weight and reps over time, as long as you can manage fatigue and recover adequately as well. So essentially what we would do is 
we would probably max out sets at around four or five for any given athlete. And then say if you're doing a hundred kilo squat, we work in a particular rep range. So for me, it's usually six to eight or actually actually six to 10 at the moment. So then I'll work up to 10 reps with a particular load, increase the weight and decrease the reps back to six. And I, like I said, given that you're recovering adequately, I think you can progress with this for quite a long time. And then what Eric Helms actually recommends is once you do store, you do have a couple of different options. So you can either in, because for bodybuilding, you do rely on volume is the main variable. So what he recommends is that increasing the sets once you do store. So say if you're doing three sets, you've maxed out at hundred kilos for six reps and you can't increase the weight anymore. It's just too high of intensity. So then you increase the reps to four and then you do three sets or sorry, four sets with six reps. And that's therefore increase the volume and provided additional stimulus. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go about it, really. So again, you don't necessarily, Jack and I really do cap our sets for our clients and ourselves probably four or five. I I don't think as a bodybuilder, you probably want to be going beyond five sets for a certain exercise. I think that would kind of be trending in the territory of junk volume, or it might even be indicating that you aren't lifting with enough intensity during your previous four or five sets. So I think that's probably an indication that you could probably increase the weight a little bit and maybe even do a few more reps and get some really good quality sets in there so that you don't have to do upwards of five sets. I think that's kind of nuts. But yeah, again, for each exercise, just try to pick maybe a rep range that you'd like to work in. So for your big compound lifts, anywhere between yeah, six to 10, six to 12 for your other exercises. So let's say things like seated row, lat pull down, maybe working within the rep range of like 10 to 15, 10 to 20, and then other exercises like more isolation exercises. So cable tri- fly. yeah, cable flies, tricep pushdowns, bicep curls, leg curl, leg extensions, exercises like that probably work anywhere between maybe 12 to 30 reps if you wanted to but there's a lot of different ways to progressively overload but Jack and I uh, track all of our clients training and our own training using excel spreadsheets and it calculates the total amount of weekly sets that they perform well uh, sets during each training day and then the total number of weekly sets and then the total training volume So the volume load and the total tonnage that they're lifting each day and each week. And if you are looking to progressively overload, you should see that total training volume going up throughout the course of a mesocycle before you deload. So really paying attention to the numbers there. Mm. We can't give away all our secrets though. Oh yes, we have all the secrets. (laughs) So the next question states, do you offer personal coaching online? I'm an intermediate lifter just wanting some extra help. And this sounds like this typical Insta influencer uh, making up questions to suit themselves. (laughs) (laughs) We swear this isn't a shameless plug. This was a real question. (laughs) So yes, we have announced on our Instagrams and on the podcast previously that we are uh, fully graduated now as dietitians. We offer coaching services for athletes and lifestyle clients as well, uh, either weekly or individual consultations as well. So you can get in contact with us either through our personal Instagrams or through our the Bodybuilding Dietitians Instagram or the email links on any of those pages as well. 
Yeah, so the email there is just thebodybuildingdietitians at gmail.com. And yeah, it would be awesome to get in contact with you. Great. All right, so next question. So this one's by Zach Martin, and he asks, how meticulous with tracking are you guys in the off-season slash improvement phase? All right, so Jack, just how meticulous are you? (laughs) So yeah, we do differ a little bit between us. I would say I'm pretty meticulous, and... It just suits my personality. So, and like the way in which I track food, it's just very, very, like it's really easy to be accurate because all of my meals contains protein, carbs, and fats. And if I'm, if I'm under it by the last meal, then I just add as much rice or peanut butter or whatever protein. Put, put some honey <laughs> on those wheat bicks. <laughs> that I need to, to hit the numbers. So it's really easy um, compared to when you might be in a deficit and you might go over with carbs at lunch and then have to, you might end up going over by the end of the day and stuff like that. So Yeah. And so would you say that you hit your numbers to the gram every day, like spot on? Or do you give yourself any sort of range? No, I hit numbers to the gram and it's just different Hashtag for me. to the gram. <laughs> it's just different for me because I I just have so much, like the issue for me isn't not eating enough, it's making sure I do eat enough. Yeah, so like it's very, it's not very hard at all to, to be accurate. Yeah, well, dude, the hard work's paying off, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much with Jack. I, I wouldn't say that I hit things exactly to the gram. I definitely in the improvement season give myself a range. My range is usually around at least 10 grams, but to be honest, my total calories for the day always balance out. So right now my set macros are 150 protein, 370 carb, and 40 fat. And I'll usually like go within that, within like a 10 gram range. It's different for each macro. So to be honest, because I eat so many grains and a lot of vegetables as well, my protein intake, like it's almost hard to keep it below 150 grams. So it's usually closer to 160 grams. Carbs are very easy. Well, there's not much variation there. <laughs> that's 10 grams, man. That's like 40 calories worth of protein. But yeah, um, I, I love protein because if you're trying to get at least 25 to 30 grams of an HBV source in each meal, and I eat four meals a day, plus all, the, all of my oats and wholemeal flour and like grains as well, it's just tough to stick below that 150. Uh, And then carbs are very easy to hit at 370. And then fats at 40 grams. Sometimes I even have trouble hitting my fats. I usually just add a little bit more olive oil to my meals. But yeah, fats can be anywhere between, yeah, usually 35 to 40 grams. But the calories always balance out. But during prep, I'm a lot more like Jack, you know, spot on really really consistent and trying my absolute best to hit those numbers probably within a plus or minus two gram range but yeah improvement season is there is a little bit more leeway but it's not an issue at all because the main thing is are you improving and i'd hopefully say that we definitely both are so it's all good it's all good (laughs) so the next question is by macy and she asks what do you do when you're sick can slash should you train So because being sick is such an umbrella term, you know, it is going to be different for every single person because illnesses can vary from, you know, a sniffly nose or a headache all the way to like 
vomiting and diarrhea or like an awful chest cold or pneumonia. So there's so many different forms of sickness, but I guess Jack and I have like a general rule, not so much a rule, but kind of like anything above the head usually or anything above the chest, it's usually all right to train. Like if you've got a little bit of a sniffly nose or a little bit of a headache, usually it's okay to train through that. Just, you know, stay hydrated and take some tissues with you to the gym. (laughs) But anything below the chest, like an awful cold where you're just like coughing up phlegm or, you know, your digestive system is whack and you're running to the bathroom every 10 minutes, uh, it might be better to stay home and not contaminate everyone else and get everyone else sick and really recover because you really have to question as well are you really going to have a good quality training session because if you're going to go into the gym and just be weak you know and very dehydrated and very sick and it's just unpleasant it honestly might be better to just stay at home recover get better sooner so that you can get back to the gym feeling 100% a lot faster rather than just delaying that recovery process. Mm, for me, I usually uh, ask myself, will it impede my performance? And if it, if I think it will, then I will not bother training and just try and rest up as much as possible and then just get back to the gym sooner uh, rather than prolonging the illness. And yeah, you just have to keep in mind that one or two sessions or even three, it's not going to make a difference to like muscle. It's, you're not going to lose muscle within that time. It might take away a little bit of momentum, but it won't actually make any sort of change in the long run. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And if you have a coach, you know, consult your coach and talk to them about how you're feeling and you guys can hopefully come up with a game plan and work through it together. But regardless, if you're sick, I hope you feel better ASAP. All right, so next question is by Archie and she asks, I've recently started deadlifting an OHP with a belt. It's amazing and I can add load to the bar feeling strong. And how often would you recommend training with a belt? Is it cheating or am I compromising myself in the long run? Um, Or should I keep a balance of belt and beltless reps? So what would you say to this? Because personally, I've actually never trained with a belt before. Mm. Yeah, so I think, I don't think a belt is a bad thing to be honest like i think this would be a better question for like an exercise physiologist or even a physio as well but i due to my back injury in the past i have done a little bit of research and asked people's opinions but i think there is a certain amount of weight that is beneficial for you to start wearing a belt due to support and structure and also um, it does increase the amount you can lift as well but I guess the key for wearing a belt is not relying overly on the belt you still want your breathing and your technique to be exactly the same as if you weren't wearing a belt so for example what I used to do wearing a belt which was wrong I'd I instead of bracing my core and holding it in, I would push out against the belt, um, like trying to push my stomach out, which really wasn't good for me at all. So now I've just I I do wear a belt again now, but I focus on keeping my core tight um, instead of pushing out against it. And I guess there's definitely nothing wrong with it. And I would say if you are progressing enough in weight to feel like you do need a belt to keep continue being safe, then I would definitely keep using it for those lifts. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really do lifts without and with a belt. I'll just keep it the same. And yeah. 
Yeah, so the whole benefit of wearing a belt is that it just increases intradominal pressure. So when you're doing things like deadlifts, when you're doing things like squats, having a belt with that extra abdominal pressure, it really helps to keep your torso upright and it just helps to keep you in a more safer position. And yes, it definitely can add to the total amount of weight that you are lifting. I would like to point out though that it, it really shouldn't be an issue. So especially you mentioned here that you're wearing a belt when you're doing overhead press and we have to think about overhead press. You know, yes, you're standing up, but you're predominantly using your deltoids, your triceps, and a bit of your upper chest during that movement. So if a belt helps you to be more stable, create more intradominal pressure, and you're able to lift more weight, you know, you are further overloading those muscle groups. And over time, that's probably likely to lead to greater muscle hypertrophy. So you have to think about the main goal. And for example, in a back squat, you know, if you are able to put more weight on the bar and perform more reps wearing a belt, and you know, a back squat is predominantly targeting your quadriceps, then you are going to reap better, better muscle hypertrophy and better gains from that. So I think it's a perfectly fine idea. And maybe people think that when they're doing deadlifts, that if they're wearing a belt, it's not going to target their lower back. But I'm not aware of any research suggesting that you don't actually use your lower back during a deadlift because mm, that's think, certainly not true. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure there's uh, research to indicate that the uh, erector spinae muscles are targeted just as much um, with or without a balance. Which so. completely makes sense. You mm. still have to recruit them. Yeah. So the next question is by Lily and she asks, digestion rates of fruits, sugars and brackets, for simple carbs, refined white bread, pasta in brackets. Okay, so I guess what we should really point out first is that sugar is an umbrella term. And when we're actually thinking about carbohydrates, they are usually in the form of disaccharides. So the type of disaccharide in sugar is sucrose, which is made up of two monosaccharides. One is glucose, one is fructose. And then the other disaccharides, one is called maltose, which is made up of two glucose molecules, and the other one is lactose. So lactose is found in dairy products, and the two monosaccharides in there would be glucose and galactose. So those are essentially sugars, but when we think about fruits, so because it has one glucose and one fructose, Fructose actually has a very low GI. It's usually, it's like a GI around 50 or 55, which means that it's actually a low glycemic index means that it spikes glucose levels quite slowly, which kind of makes sense because we don't actually have that many fructose transporters in the small intestine. You can only absorb around 30 grams of fructose per hour. And as for glucose, you can only absorb around 60 grams of glucose per hour. And also, it wouldn't make sense for fructose to spike blood glucose levels because fructose in the body needs to be converted into glucose. But essentially, to answer your question, I wouldn't worry too much about the digestion rate of fruit or whether or not you know you ate a piece of bread or you ate some white pasta or something like that because we're usually not eating those foods singularly. We're usually eating them in a mixed meal. And 
gosh knows, you know, when if you have a mixed meal with protein and fats in it, it can take up to like six to eight hours, honestly, to digest some meals. So yeah, what, how, what would you add to that, Jack? Yeah, I wouldn't really say anything else. I would just, yeah, reinforce that, especially with fruits as well. You also have the added fiber, some fruits being higher fiber than others. So especially if you like eat an apple with a peel versus without a peel. And yeah, I don't know anyone who eats white bread by itself or like that's the the typical reference standard for the glycemic index is actually a piece of white bread. So Mm -hmm. which is a which is a hundred. So yeah, so just glucose there. So I'd say just focus on eating mixed meals. But if you were to eat food singularly, then I guess refined carbohydrates. So if you were to just eat like table sugar or if you were to eat plain white bread and you were eating it in a fasted state, then yes, that would be absorbed that glucose and raise blood glucose levels faster than if you were to eat something like an orange or a handful of grapes. All right, so next question. Yep, so three questions to go. We have one next Is it hard to find work as a dietetics graduate? Asking as I'll soon be one. Hmm. So uh, maybe we aren't the best people to answer this question because Jack and I, you know, we created jobs for ourselves. We started this business, the bodybuilding dietitians, because we knew our passions were and we really wanted to niche. And we recognized that we were very unlikely to get a job in this niche unless we created it for ourselves. But I guess I'll just say from word on the street that if you do want to work in a hospital as a dietitian, it's probably going to be very, very challenging to find work, especially in a suburban area. Like, so for example, here in Brisbane or any major city at a major hospital, usually have to climb the ladder in order to work as a dietitian in a hospital. So if you want to do that, you'd probably have to go more rural. Uh, But yeah, and uh, quite a few people in our cohort have said that, you know, it is difficult to find work. Yeah, I would say it's very proportional to how much effort you put in. If you just go along and do the degree and then graduate and then try and look for a job, you probably won't have too much success unless you get lucky or unless you have connections. So what I would do is leading up to your graduation and your whole final semester, make contacts, uh, send out letters to people, try and volunteer for work experience, all those sorts of things that you hear people say, which sound really boring, but it really will, it really will increase your chances of getting a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say and definitely recommend joining Dietetics Connection, Dietitian's Connection. Dietitian Connection. Dietitian Connection. And also you'll need to get your APD status as well. So that's an Australian practicing dietitian. So they've got really good support networks there. But hopefully whichever area of dietetics you are aiming to go into, you know, hopefully that is your passion. And if it is your passion, then I have no doubt that you're probably willing to work very hard to ensure that you can land yourself a job in that area. So the next question is test boosters, good or bad? Okay, so the theory behind test boosters is obviously to increase your testosterone level. And the ingredients that are used in isolation may increase testosterone by a very, very, very small amount in ideal circumstances for people who may have low testosterone. However, they don't increase it by enough to actually deem it worthwhile, 
if that makes sense. Yeah, like you have to go to super physiological levels of testosterone to actually see significant increases in muscle hypertrophy. So that's why, you know, there are performance enhancing drugs out there that are very, very powerful. But I think something that, you know, a lot of supplement companies might do is that they identify a certain nutrient that is involved in testosterone production. So I think, for example, zinc would probably be a pretty good example of this. So yes, zinc in the body is very important for testosterone production, but that doesn't mean that consuming, you know, zinc tablets every single day is going to drastically increase your testosterone levels. And another nutrient involved in testosterone production would be vitamin D. But in the same case for zinc, unless you are, you know, significantly deficient in testosterone and your body's just not producing enough of it, then yes, perhaps getting yourself up to, you know, adequate levels of zinc and vitamin D may help you bring you back up to a normal range of testosterone but it's probably not going to increase past that normal range no matter how much vitamin D or how much zinc you consume. You just, you can't go beyond that. Your body won't let you. It really likes staying at homeostasis. Mm, exactly. So guys, unfortunately, we are coming up on time and we did have quite a few other questions that came through, but unfortunately, we just won't be able to answer them in this episode, but certainly in our next episode, we should be able to get to them. But to finish the episode, we will end on our very last question and that is one thing that we learned this week so jack i'm gonna let you go first what's something that you learned so i've actually been practicing a bit of mindfulness and meditation over the last week so i've only recently started and i got on this from aj morris who's been preaching it quite a bit and i think it's very easy to overlook the importance of um, stress relief and the impact that stress can have on recovery and how just negative thought processing and your daily outlook on life can impede certain aspects. And I found that, so the purpose of mindfulness is basically just living in the moment, not thinking about the, the past or future or not dwelling on what you have to do that day or any negative thoughts. And I found this has been quite helpful for especially my back because I do still have daily pain with that fortunately not fortunately i was still able to train adequately but it's more just daily pain that's ongoing and yeah it's just helped my outlook on certain things and just feeling a bit more relaxed and uh reducing my stress as well so i recommend anyone else to give it a go the app i use is headspace yeah, I think that certainly mindfulness and meditation, you know, some people might be a little bit resistant to it, thinking like, you know, I don't want to meditate or, you know, that's just for Buddhists or something like that. But it's not like that at all, is it? You know, mm. it's a it's a form of um, actually, I won't say it actually is, but I know something like cognitive behavioral therapy is an actual form of treatment used by psychologists. And I'm, I'm fairly sure mindfulness is as well. Yeah, for sure. And it, it is an actual, it is an actual um, treatment used for back pain. Yeah, and it doesn't require, you know, to isolate yourself for an hour and just like, you know... Go, go to a temple. Yeah, go to a temple. <laughs> Literally, you can just for five or ten minutes just turn on a little headspace audio thing and just sit and relax for five or ten minutes and just gather your thoughts. I think that's super beneficial and I'm so happy that you're doing that now. Hopefully you've um, encouraged a lot of other guys to do that now too. Mm. Mm. 
All right, so just to finish off, one thing that I learned this week is that I can no longer do seated calf raises because <laughs> it turns out that I have been doing calf raises diligently ever since I met Jack over three years ago now. He's now <laughs> touching my calves, <laughs> making sure they're still there. Anyway, Jack encouraged me to start doing calf raises when we first met, and I have been very consistent with them, but... Oh, silly me. I've only been using one exercise modality Why to train that, my... Because I just feel it really well. <laughs> so but you don't feel it in your gastrocnemius. Yeah, so that's, that's what I'm getting to. So I've just been doing seated calf raises for the last three years. And the other day, Jack was questioning my calf anatomy. And he's like, what the hell is that long muscle belly? And I'm like, what do you mean, man? That's my calf. Turns out that there's two major muscles in your calf, and anyone who studied anatomy would know this. There's the soleus, which is underneath, and then the gastrocnemius, which is over top. Now, the seated calf raise machine is it only trains the soleus, Ooh, and it turns predominantly. No, apparently really? it really just only targets the soleus, really doesn't tar do much for the gastrocnemius. Anyway, so I've been doing this for three years, and safe to say, I've got a pretty impressive soleus. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty nice, <laughs> but my gastrocnemius, eh, it could use some work. So yes, I've learned my lesson, and I'm not, I'm no longer doing seated calf raises, and I'm, I've started to do standing calf raises now on the Smith machine. And yeah, so that's my little lesson learned. If you want to train your calves, make sure that you are doing more than just one exercise, especially if you're doing it almost every single day for three years straight. So <laughs> my gastrocnemius has got some catching up to do. But hey, I'll get there, man. <laughs> Build myself some little softballs. All right, so that is the end of our 31st episode. Thank you again so much for tuning in. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag bodybuilding dietitians. Honestly, we appreciate your support so much. And we'll catch you next week. Thank you. See you guys.